Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past uh, several months in the book of Exodus. And throughout the book of Exodus, we have said and seen uh, the, the myriad of ways that the Exodus story really is our story. That just as Israel uh, was enslaved in Egypt, just as God sent his representative Moses to lead them from that slavery into a new inheritance, that the New Testament tells us that each one of us lives a life that's marked by a type of slavery. That the whole world, in fact, is, a, is enslaved to sin and death and destruction. And that he sent Jesus to lead us into a life of freedom and into a new inheritance as his sons and daughters. And so we've seen throughout these incredible parallels between uh, the situation of the Israelites in captivity in Egypt and our own lives here and our own journey from slavery into freedom and belonging. And so this morning, we come to a section of Exodus that's quite well known, but that does present a challenge for the preacher. It is the story of the ten plagues that God sent into Egypt. And unfortunately, it marks chapters 7 through 12 of the book of Exodus. And so rather than standing up here and reading five solid chapters of Exodus for you, um, or, you know, that doesn't really work. Also, it doesn't really work to break it up. It wouldn't be very interesting for you to have a sermon on flies one week and then a sermon on gnats the next week and then a sermon on boils the following week. Uh, we are going to attempt to tackle this section uh, as one section because really it is. It's a section that reveals so much of who God is as a God of judgment and salvation. But we're just going to look uh, at the first 13 verses of the section, Exodus uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And so, uh, with the confidence that you won't be standing for five chapters, if you would stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Again, our scripture reading is Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. 
Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same secrets, the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's spoken to us in love. You can be seated. Really, this entire section of Exodus uh, orients around Pharaoh's words in Exodus chapter 5. God, goes, or, uh, God sends Moses uh, to Pharaoh, and he announces, uh, Yahweh says, let my people go. And you remember the question that Pharaoh asks. He asks, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice? Who is this God uh, that I, Pharaoh, the leader of the most powerful empire on earth, should listen to him and should obey his voice? And really, this entire section from Exodus 5 through Exodus 12 through the Passover is God's answer to that question. Who is the Lord that we should give him our obedience uh, at his command? When Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? His question uh, isn't one of unbelief. It's not one of, oh, come on, we know that there's not such thing as gods that tell us what to do. His question isn't doubt about the existence of God. His, his problem is pluralism, right? He doesn't disbelieve in the existence of a God. He believes in the existence of many gods. So his question isn't, can there be a God who can command it's what makes this God special. Why should I care about what Yahweh, a God that I've never heard of, from a small little people who I possess as slaves, why should I care about what their deity says that I should do with my kingdom? So Pharaoh wasn't an atheist. He was a pluralist. And beyond that, he was actually a pluralist who didn't just believe in many gods. He believed that he was one of those gods. Right? Remember, Egypt uh, oriented around Pharaoh as though he was one of their deities, as though his word carried the full weight of all of their deities behind him. And so Pharaoh's worldview is that there's many gods, and none of those gods actually have the right to tell me what to do. All of those gods actually exist to further my agenda, my ambitions, my kingdom. And in that way, uh, Pharaoh would have fit in perfectly well uh, in, in the contemporary West, uh, in the America that you and I live in, right? That most of us, the water that we swim in isn't one of outright atheism and unbelief, but one of pluralism, right? We live in a world of many gods, of many belief systems, right? The, the fastest growing subgroup, uh, according to the Pew Religion Survey done about five years ago, is a group that they identify as the nuns, right? Not ladies in funny outfits, but the nuns as in those who, when asked what their religion is, say none. And of this group, uh, currently about 23% of the population, much higher uh, among millennials uh, in gen Generation Y, most of them are not atheists. Most don't say, well, I don't believe that there can be a God. In fact, most of them say that their spirituality and their religion is very important to them. But, like Pharaoh, they would say, who is this God 
Why does the God of the Bible have any more right to command my life, to order my life, uh, than anybody else, than any other belief system, including whatever belief system I, I come up with on my own? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's Pharaoh's question. And it's, it's many of our questions. It's certainly many of your neighbor's questions. Many of us, even churchgoers, wrestle with that fundamental question in the daily stuff of our lives. Right? Am I foolish or naive to believe that there's one God who speaks with one voice and who has the right to order my life, who has the right to tell me what's good and what's bad, what's righteous and what's evil, what's wise and what's foolish? And so in Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We hear our own questions. I hear my questions. And the plagues uh, are God's answer to these questions in many ways. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord now says, well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you who I am by what I do, by showing you my power. And so... The plagues are God's answer to this question of authority, that in a world full called gods, he is the God who alone has the authority to command, to judge, and ultimately to save. So this is a crucial message for each of us to hear this morning because it lands right where we live. It lands right in our world. And so it opens with this strange sign, right, to, to give a first miracle God says to Moses, tell Aaron to take his staff and to throw it down, and it's going to become a snake. And Pharaoh sees this, which I think all of us would, you know, if, if I walked in with a cane and then threw it down and it turned into a snake, I think all of us would think, well, that's, that's strange. That's, that's an odd display. Maybe there's something going on here. But interestingly, Pharaoh then has some of his priests, magicians, sorcerers, come out and they throw down their staffs and they also turn into snakes. Right, that's one of the strange little details of this story from our kind of modern Western worldview, is that the gods of Egypt seem to have some power in this story. They're, they're, they seem to have some but not enough power. They're able to make their staffs turn into snakes, so there's some spiritual reality even behind uh, these idolatrous and false gods. Some of the plagues that God will bring to Egypt, they're able to imitate. They're able to turn a little bit of the Nile's water to blood, just as Moses turns all the water into blood. So there's something there, but then God allows Aaron's staff snake to eat up theirs. And that, that visual image really is a picture of what's going to happen in all of the rest of the plagues. In all of the plagues, we see the God of Israel doing battle with and overcoming the gods of Egypt. Really, that's what's going on in all 10 of the plagues. It's fascinating to look at. We won't have time to get into all of it, but I'll give you a sampling. But all of the plagues that God brings against the Egyptians are a direct counter to one of the main gods in the Egyptian pantheon of deities. The first plague, Moses goes and he touches the water of the Nile and turns it into blood. And actually, that then the Nile was the lifeblood uh, of Egypt. It was what gave uh, water to all of their crops, to all of their streams, to all of it. And so it turns all of the waters of Egypt into blood. Happy was the uh, Egyptian god of the Nile who controlled its water. And by turning it into blood, God says, no, no, no. Happy doesn't control the waters of the Nile. I do. 
right? We don't, you don't live in a world where this mountain is ruled by this God and this river is ruled by this God and this tribe has this God. You rule in a world in which the creator has absolute say over his creation. The Egyptian goddess Hecate is a goddess with the head of a frog. And so the next plague is causing frogs to come out of the Nile. Millions of them, and then they die. Can you imagine being in a, in a world with millions of dead frogs just laying around? How bad that would stink? Geb was the Egyptian god of the earth. Yahweh has the earth turn into gnats and to come up and consume itself. Isis was the goddess of medicine and peace, and God causes boils to grow on the people. Finally, Ra, the chief god of Egypt, the sun god. And God blots out the sun and turns the sun into darkness. You know, in our world, uh, sometimes you'll hear the the word apologetics. Apologetics is the task of a Christian, uh, or really a person of any, any faith or belief system, giving an answer to the world rationally about what we believe. So you might hear apologists that go onto college campuses and enter into dialogues with how we can believe in the existence of a God or how we can believe in the historical nature of the resurrection or how we can believe that there's a good God in a world with so much suffering and evil. Right? Well, in the ancient world, this is apologetics. Right? They were, this was the worldview uh, that Moses entered into and that God enters into. It was a world where the question wasn't, how do I make a rational appropriation of who God is? How do I square him with modern Western science? The question is, which God is the real God? And so over and over again, the Old Testament does this kind of stuff where they're trying to show uh, the plausibility of belief that the world has one God and not many gods. That, That God is the Lord and therefore the Egyptian gods aren't. Therefore, the Babylonian gods aren't. Therefore, the Canaanite gods aren't. Right? That if Yahweh is Lord, then Baal is not Lord. If Yahweh is Lord, then Ra is not Lord. And so we see this just like you or I might pick up a book to try to to gain some kind of understanding about how we situate faith within the different belief systems of our day. That's what Exodus is doing here. It's situating the faith of Israel in the faith of their neighbors and saying that, that their God is the true God. And so we need to recognize that this message is true for us as well. Though many of us are not, you know, none of us are really likely, I don't think, to go out and worship the God of the St. John's River or to, uh, to start uh, worshiping one of these seemingly strange and barbaric ancient gods. Right? The message of Exodus at this point is that Yahweh is not a God who's tolerant of rivals. Right? To put it uh, in the language that you might remember from your elementary school days, God does not play well with others. God is not the kind of God who's content with just some small part of your life. He's not the kind of God who wants this little sliver of your heart uh, called religion, right? That he wants the religious part of your life, but then you're free to trust other gods with the other parts of your life, to take your economic hopes elsewhere, your relational hopes elsewhere, your political hopes elsewhere. Right, And all of us do that, every human being. John Calvin says that the human heart is a factory of idols. Right, That means that whether you're living in 2nd century B.C. Egypt or contemporary Jacksonville, that your heart will find things to hope in and to trust in. 
you'll find things to trust in with the very basic things of your life. And here through these plagues, God says that he is the only one worthy of trust. He's the only one who's capable of delivering on his promises. He's the only God who's capable of bringing judgment and salvation into the world. And he goes on to show us that to ignore his lordship, to ignore his right to command our lives, brings our lives into disorder. Right? That the God who brings creation into the world also has the power to undo his creation in our lives. Right? That the, 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 the point of view of the Old Testament is this that God is the creator God who orders all things. And that his law shows us how to live our lives in keeping with his creation. That uh, to live according to his law is to live our lives with the grain of the universe. It's to live our lives in such a way that we experience what the Old Testament calls shalom. Perfect peace. Perfect harmony. That if we lived our lives in keeping with the commands of God, that we would have harmony with him as our creator. We'd have harmony with our brothers and sisters in creation, and that, in fact, the whole world would live with a sense of peace. But what sin brings into the world is the disordering of creation. But instead of creation operating like it should, creation itself begins to unravel. That our lives, when lived outside of God's ordering, start to drift back into chaos. And that's one of the things that uh, commentators point out about this section of uh, Exodus, uh, the plagues, chapters 5 through 11, that it bears remarkable parallels and inverse parallels to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. That just as the creation story is God bringing order and light out of a world of chaos and darkness, that Exodus 5 through 11 is the story of order and light giving way and bring, going back into chaos and darkness. So that by the end, we see the God who spoke over creation saying, let there be light, now saying, let there be darkness. The God who brought light out of the darkness now brings darkness back out of the light. And what he's saying is that my creation order only comes in its fullness. Your life, your society, your people only work as they're supposed to when I'm acknowledged as Lord. When I'm not Lord, creation itself starts to unravel. That's why in the curse, uh, right after Adam and Eve's fall into sin, when God tells them what the consequence of their sin will be, he says what? You came out of the earth. You were made from dust. And now to dust, you'll go back. You'll return to dust. Things will fall apart and deteriorate. The very earth that gave you life, you will break down and rejoin. And friends, we see evidence of this everywhere around us. Right now, most of us won't live through kind of active, terrible, miraculous plagues like the Egyptians lived through. But all around us, we see the consequence of our abandonment of God, of our believing that we have the right to order our lives, not God. We see it in our society, right? We see it in the, uh, the ways that our world is broken. We see it in the way that the inequalities that permeate our world. We see it in the, the neighborhoods that we live in. We see it in our own personal lives as our, our inner lives and our relational lives fall apart because we seek to order them according to our own wisdom and our own strength. 
Obeying God in this way, believing that he has as the creator the right to tell us what to do with our lives, uh, is really very much like uh, believing the doctor. When you go into the doctor and he tells you, you do the blood work, and he says you've got high cholesterol, and if you keep eating a Big Mac a day, uh, you are going to die. Your heart's gonna, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to die. Now, you might uh, throw off his authority and say, who's that, who's that doctor to judge me? I know what I can eat. I, I like Big Macs, and I believe them to be good for me. Right? You can do that if you want to do it, but you will eventually get the consequence of doing it. Right? Eventually, his authority will bear out in the fact that your body will break down because he knows how your body is meant to work. And usually in our lives, that is how God's judgment works. It doesn't work like you're walking down the, the road and you have a, you know, all of a sudden a lightning bolt strikes you. It works as when we order our lives by our own wisdom, we make a mess of things, right? Believing we know best, we end up lost and adrift, slaves to habits that we thought would bring us life and instead lead only to death. And so finally we see that the plagues, this, this judgment that God has a right to bring as the creator of the universe, that God has the power to bring, that God's judgment is actually his path to salvation. Right now, we don't want to believe this. Uh, usually we have a habit of pitting God's judgment against God's grace. Right? If you ever heard somebody say something like, well, you know what, I like the New Testament, uh, because the New Testament, the God of Jesus is a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of forgiveness. But I'm not so sure about the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems like a God of judgment. He seems like a God of, of law. He seems like a God even of violence at times. And so we pit God's judgment and God's salvation against one another very often. But one of the main themes that, that you'll see if you read the Bible is that God's judgment is a part of his salvation that God cannot save without judging, and that whenever God judges, God also saves. Right? God can't save without judgment because this world is broken by sin. Right? This world is plagued with injustice. Right? And God, to be a righteous and just God, to affect the healing of the world, has to deal with evil. Right? You don't want to live in a world where Hitler goes unjudged. Right? And... and Hitler's the one that obviously, you know, he's the, the example par excellence of evil. But there are millions of little mini Hitlers in this world, right? The, the teaching of the Bible on sin is that each and every one of us has something that ugly in us, right? That each one of us has that level of selfishness, of anger, of pride, of lust, of vanity, right? And for God to heal the world, he has to bring judgment on the world. And that's good news, but it's also terrifying news because each, of, each and every one of us stands condemned as broken and sinful people. But God always judges in order to save. Look, we see God's salvation all over the story of the plagues. Now, obviously, he brings the plagues in order to save Israel, right? He's bringing plagues against Egypt in order to get Pharaoh's heart to finally soften to the point that he'll let the people of Israel go. So on a basic level, we see his, his judgment against evil enslavement working to liberate the people of Israel. But beyond that, we even see his grace and his salvation 
towards the Egyptians in this story. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, if if you've ever read these, these stories of the plagues, but God seems to be, throughout the stories of the plagues, not really doing his worst. Right Throughout it, it seems like you know, God's going into a boxing match with his right hand tied behind his back. Right? That the God who created everything could easily just say, Pharaoh, let my people go. You don't want to do it? Okay, he's dead. Let him go now? No, you're dead. Now, you know, he could just bring death right away. He could bring destruction right away. But instead, he actually seems to be warning Pharaoh every step that it's about to get worse. In fact, sometimes he even helps Pharaoh prepare to avoid the worst of it. When he sends hail, he gives Pharaoh enough of a warning that he says, tonight there's going to be hail the size of which is big enough to kill. So get your livestock inside and get your people inside so that they're not damaged by the hail. Right? If you were a God who is simply interested in bringing as much destruction leveraged against the Egyptians as possible, you wouldn't do that. In chapter 9, verse 15, God says this, By this time I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You hear what he says? He says, look, I could have wiped you out by now, but I've raised you up so that I can show you and the world my power. Right, that my power isn't just for the Israelites. It's not just so that Israel sees my power, not just so they, they taste my salvation, but so that the whole world can see my saving power. That's incredible mercy. If only Pharaoh would have responded by softening his heart. Right, think about uh, in this escalating cycle of judgment, what could have been saved If instead of a hard heart, Pharaoh had responded with a soft heart. And the offer of God's grace comes to each of us in the same way. Right? When presented with God's judgment, his right to judge, and his power to save, each and every one of us is confronted with the question of, will I harden my heart against this? Or will I pray to God for a soft heart? A soft heart that can receive from him the salvation that he's offering, the grace that he's offering. Because ultimately, of course, the plagues point to the ultimate story of God's exodus, the ultimate story of God's saving grace, that the God who caused the sun to be blotted out over Egypt so that darkness fell over the land is the same God who 1,200 years later caused the sun not to shine as his son hung on the cross, that caused the world to go dark as Jesus hung And in that moment, the son cries out to the father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, that the God who says, let there be light and causes the light of his presence to shine on the earth, caused the darkness of his absence to fall over his son so that Jesus, the the only righteous one ever to live, could take on himself the plague of God's judgment, the full weight of God's wrath, and justice, so that we can experience a greater exodus, freedom from slavery, not the temporal slavery of the Egyptians, but the slavery of sin and death 
and judgment. God bringing out a people to himself through judgment to salvation. Let's pray that God would soften our hearts to receive his saving power in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you um, are the one who takes away the sin of the world. That you take away not only the darkness of sin and evil, but that you actually take onto yourself the weight of the Father's judgment. Lord, that through your sacrifice, we can pass through judgment into salvation and life. Lord, we confess that each one of us has gone our own way, that we've sought uh, to order our own lives, that we've chased after other gods. Lord, we pray that you would gather us back to yourself, that seeing and convinced of your power, your authority uh, to judge and to save, Lord, that we would, uh, that you, by your spirit, you would soften our hearts, that we might trust in you and follow you into new life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.